Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 17. And if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we're in the midst of a series walking through the book of Genesis, and Genesis chapter 17 is up next, so here we are, and I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. Holy Scripture says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any, cir- any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall, be, she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, All that Ishmael might live before you, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. 
When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is God's holy word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to understand and believe and follow your call upon our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Genesis chapter 17 is quite obviously about God's covenant. The passage refers to my covenant nine times, an everlasting covenant three times, and sign of the covenant once. These 13 occurrences of the word covenant show it to be a dominant theme in this chapter. And it's uh, very instructive to keep chapter 15 in mind, which we looked at two weeks ago, as we look at chapter 17. Remember what I said two weeks ago, although a covenant consists of promises made, a covenant is actually greater than the promises that it contains. When a covenant is initially made, the cutting of the covenant solidifies the promises through solemn ceremony that typically involves a sacrifice. That's what we saw in chapter 15. Through blood sacrifice and formal ceremony, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, Genesis 15:18. So the Lord's covenant with Abraham had already been established and solemnized several years before the events of Genesis chapter 17. The emphasis of the covenant-making ceremony in chapter 15 is that the Lord took upon himself sole responsibility to fulfill his promises. Although Abram had prepared the sacrifice in obedience to the Lord's instruction, when it actually came time to ratify the covenant, Abram was asleep, and the Lord alone passed through the broken pieces of the sacrificed animals. The Lord pledged on the basis of his own character that he would give Abram innumerable offspring and that he would give the land of Canaan to Abram's descendants. The Lord is promise maker and promise keeper, and he will see to it that his promises are fulfilled. When the Lord alone passed through the sacrificed animals to ratify the covenant, when the Lord alone was crucified for the sins of his people in order to ratify the new covenant, he reveals himself to be the sole guarantor of the covenant promises. But this raises a question. When God pledges himself to us and brings us into his covenant, do we have any covenant obligations? Do we have any covenant duties? 
Or does the Lord's decision to take sole responsibility for the implementation of his promises, does that mean that we have no responsibilities? Does the Lord's sovereign decree mean that we are duty-free? As a matter of fact, it doesn't. And chapter 17 shows us that God's covenant partners have responsibilities of their own, responsibilities that have been given to them by the Lord. The New Testament teaches us that those who have faith in Jesus are participants in the New Covenant and at the same time that we are counted among Abraham's offspring. And so given that, those facts, and since Abraham is viewed as a model of faith in Romans chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11, we ought to learn from his example about what it means to be God's faithful covenant partner. You can see there in chapter 17, it neatly divides into two sections. You have God talking with Abraham in verses 1 through 22. The Lord appears in verse 1, and then he's, he goes up in verse 22, and that's one unit. And then the end of the chapter, verses 23 to 27, recount Abraham's obedience. So let's walk through this. Specifically, God talks covenant with Abram in verses 1 to 22. The Lord's uh, words unfold in several parts and teach us this lesson. Here's the lesson I want to keep reminding us of this morning. You must demonstrate your faith in the Lord God Almighty by walking blamelessly before Him, by being anchored in His promises, and by observing the signs of His covenant. And I'll I'll, I'll be returning to that summary of today's lesson as we go through this. In verse 1, the Lord appears to Abram and says to him, I am God Almighty. The Lord is El Shaddai, God Almighty, who directs the course of history, rules the nations, saves his people, reveals the future. The Lord then gives Abram this command, walk before me and be blameless. Right off the bat, we realize that Abram's relationship with the Lord entails a responsibility to live his life in the light of God's presence and to live in such a way that he is blameless, perfect, complete. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Genesis 3.8. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, Genesis 4.16. That's moving in the wrong direction. God intends for us to live in his presence, in contrast to the whole world that had become corrupt in God's sight, Genesis 6.11, Noah was righteous before the Lord, Genesis 7.1. Now in Genesis 17.1, Abram is instructed to live his entire life before the face of God. God always summons his people to live a God-centered life and to pursue it with great determination and focus. Once you come to the conviction that the living God has called you to live your entire life in awareness of His presence, His holiness, His agenda, then you have the right definitive priority that outweighs every other consideration. Chasing the world, appeasing other people, pleasing yourself, 
must fade into the background and you must be resolved to draw near to the Lord, find out what is pleasing to Him, and then do it with all your heart. For we cannot be blameless unless we actually walk in obedience to the one who's called us. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5.48. Demonstrate your faith in the Lord by walking blamelessly before Him. God's opening statement continues in verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Of course, God has already made a covenant with Abram in chapter 15. So the make, it's a different, it's a different Hebrew word from chapter 15, so the make in make my covenant does not mean to make something new that doesn't previously exist. Instead, the idea here is that God is reaffirming a covenant that already exists and that God is setting this covenant that already exists between him and Abram. For Abram's part, Abram is called to walk blamelessly in light of God's covenant promises. promises. Abram is called to live his life in a manner worthy of the covenant of God's grace. All of this, the appearing of the Lord, the command to walk faithfully, the reminder of God's covenant, has the effect of humbling Abram. Verse 3, Abram fell on his face. When God draws near to us, and in that moment and in that place, we must understand that we are on holy ground. And the proper response is to fall on our face with a hushed mouth and attentive ears. Let's move to verses 4 to 8, where the Lord reaffirms His covenant promises to Abram. The lesson continues. You must demonstrate your faith in the Lord God Almighty, not only by walking blamelessly before Him, but also by being anchored in His promises. There's a lot of promises here in verses 4 to, eight, four, 4 to 8 and again later in verses 15 to 21. That's where our life is anchored. Just as God's promises were the solid ground upon which Abram was called to live life, so God's promises must be the solid ground beneath our feet as well. The promises of God are what energize and sustain our everyday obedience. In verse 4, God tells Abram, Behold, my covenant is with you. Covenant already established, chapter 15, and building upon that foundation now, the Lord is going to speak forth these further developments in verses 4 to 8. And, and what you see there in verses 4 to 6 is that the Lord changes Abram's name. Now I'm going to have to start saying Abraham instead of Abram, like I have for the last several weeks. Abram's original name is Abram means exalted father, which, as one commentator points out, may actually have been given to Abram in honor of Abram's father, Terah. But Abram's new name, Abraham, highlights the fact that Abram himself will be a great father. There's a play on words here. The name Abraham, 
his new name, sounds like Abe Haman, which means father of a multitude. To name someone is an exercise of authority. Parents have the authority to name their children, but God has ultimate authority. He has the authority to tell parents what to name their children as he did with Ishmael in chapter 16 and as he does with Isaac later in this chapter. God also has the right to change someone's name as he does twice in chapter 17. The name that God assigns has the meaning that God assigns to it. And in in this case, Abraham's name, name is prophetic. When God spoke these words to Abraham, he had one son, Ishmael, 13 years old, and yet, set, and yet what does God say? I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you. It's as good as done, as far as God is concerned. In due course, several nations will owe their lineage to Abraham. Through Ishmael, the Ishmaelites. Through Isaac's son Esau, the Edomites. Through Isaac's son Jacob, both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And after Sarah's death, Abram took another wife, Genesis 25.1, and had six additional sons. And it seems as though some additional nations stemmed from the sons of his later years. However, even though Abraham is is the father of a multitude of nations, not every nation is the great nation that God promised to make out of Abraham in Genesis 12 too. Not every nation is steward of the covenant promises. Not every nation is God's covenant partner. Not every nation is promised the land of Canaan as an inheritance. So after verses 5 and 6 give us a wide field of view in terms of many nations stemming from Abraham, we have to keep in mind that the covenant itself is focused on the chosen seed, and this will become very clear in the words regarding Isaac. But continuing with the chapter here in verses 7 and 8, these verses drive home the fact that God's covenant with Abraham will be extended to Abraham's offspring. Since Genesis chapter 12, God has been making promises to Abraham about Abraham's offspring, and God has been promising Abraham that he will give the promised land to those offspring. But when God cut the covenant in chapter 15, God made the covenant with Abraham. Now, in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 17, moves the discussion forward by making it clear that Abraham's offspring will be made party to the covenant that God has already made with Abram. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, verse 7, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The idea here is that God promises to confirm the covenant that he already made with Abraham and then to confirm and extend that covenant with Abraham's offspring. Don't miss the heart of this promise. The heart of the everlasting covenant is this, to be God to you. 
and to your offspring after you. The central feature of the covenant is, I will be their God, or I will be your God. Remember, a covenant is a framework of relationship. The framework matters. The the specific promises and responsibilities matter. But never lose sight of the chief objective, which is to live in the blessedness of having the true God as our God. To live in the reality and security and joy of having El Shaddai watch over us and be a refuge to us and provide for us. One of the covenant refrains that you hear throughout the Bible is, I will be your God and you will be my people. Do you get this priority? We study the Bible, and rightly so. We pay attention to every word, and rightly so, because every word comes from the mouth of God and is designed for our spiritual nourishment. We unpack a lot of information. We talk about God's promises and God's covenant and God's activity, and we consider how information in one passage relates to information in another passage. Try to understand how it all fits together and all that's important to being anchored in sound doctrine. It's essential to make sure that our knowledge of God is actually governed by God's words and not by the fancies of our own imaginations. But after all is said and done, the point is not to have fellowship with a book or with information or with systematic theology, or with religion, or with tradition, but with a person. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. I will be God to you. I will be their God. One of the most tragic realities is th- that's described in Scripture is that over and over again, Abraham's physical descendants rejected the Lord. The first century Jewish religious leaders, they claimed Abraham as their father, and yet their hearts were far from God. They claimed to be privileged beneficiaries of a rich heritage, and yet they missed the point. What about you? Do you merely have a lot of biblical data bouncing around the stratosphere of your brain? Do you merely have a lot of religious busyness on your schedule? Or do you know that God Almighty is your God, your refuge and strength, a present help in tumultuous times, a Father who blesses blesses you and supplies your needs, a merciful and faithful God who keeps His promises? There is no substitute in all the world for knowing that the Lord is your God. After reaffirming his covenant to Abraham in verses 4 to 8, verses nine, in verses 9 to 13, the Lord commands Abraham to keep his covenant. And this takes us to the third part of the lesson. You must demonstrate your faith in the Lord God Almighty, not only by walking blamelessly before him, not only by being anchored in his promises, but also by keeping the signs of his covenant. God says to Abraham in verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. While our covenant keeping involves walking blamelessly in all of life and always living in humble awareness of the fact that God is our God, nevertheless, the focus of covenant keeping in verses 9 to 14 is clearly upon receiving the sign of the covenant. 
The sign, of course, is circumcision. Verses 10 and 11. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. These verses really help us to understand what is new in chapter 17. The covenant itself is not new but had been made and solemnized years earlier in chapter 15. So chapter 17 is a, it's a confirmation and reaffirmation of a covenant already made. But there is something new in chapter 17. And what's new is the covenant sign. This is very instructive. Very instructive counterpart to chapter 15. Chapter 15, the Lord took sole responsibility for the making of and keeping of the covenant. But in chapter 17, the Lord assigns to Abraham, his covenant partner, a specific responsibility. Abraham and his descendants must be marked as people who are in covenant with God. God's will is not for his covenant to remain invisible, mediated only by words. Words are vital to revealing the spiritual reality of the covenant. But God's will is that his covenant be made tangible, visible, physical, that his covenant be put in the flesh of his covenant partners. The sign of the covenant can be understood as the mark of the Lord. And this tangible sign, this identifying mark, makes it clear to us that we are God's people, that God has made his covenant with us, and that we have covenant obligations to him. As God appointed men to exercise leadership and to represent their Households before God, so it is fitting that only males were to receive the sign of circumcision. Once the sign was implemented, the protocol is for male children to be circumcised on the eighth day, but to get started, every member of Abraham's household needed to be circumcised regardless of age, and that would soon take place. Once the practice of circumcision was established, a man could not claim to be a participant in God's covenant if he had not received the covenant sign. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If a man, under the Abrahamic covenant, under the Mosaic covenant later, if a man doesn't get cut into the covenant, through circumcision, then he gets cut off from God's covenant people. Both the covenant and the sign of the covenant are a serious matter, a matter of life and death. The choice is clear. Receive the covenant sign and abide among the covenant people or refuse the covenant sign and be discovenanted, in which case the Lord will not be your God and you will have no share in the covenant blessings. Now, even before we consider how this instruction about circumcision applies to us who are participants in the new covenant, I do hope you realize the weightiness of God's instruction. The fundamental human problem is that we want to follow the dictates of our own evil hearts. Sinners want to argue with God. Sinners want to relate to God on their own terms, not God's terms. Sinners want the freedom to break covenant and still claim God's covenant blessings. Sinners want the liberty to say, circumcision isn't that important. 
what really matters is what's in the heart. I hope you can see how misguided these sentiments are. The statement, it's what's in the heart that counts, is true in the sense that trust and obedience are only genuine if, in fact, they are rooted in the heart. But when people use, it's what in the heart, it's what is in the heart that counts, when they say that as a justification for disobeying God's commands, what they are actually revealing is that what is in their heart is a desire to disobey God's commands and to justify their disobedience, which will only bring about their condemnation at the final judgment. The, the covenant of, the, of circumcision can be legitimately applied in at least two ways. First, since the covenant sign is a rite of initiation into the covenant, it may be applied to Christian baptism. I'm not saying that there's an exact correspondence between circumcision and baptism, but there is certainly a connection. Just as male Israelites were made a visible part of the Abrahamic covenant through circumcision, so now all believers, both men and women, from all nations are commanded to become a visible part of God's covenant people through baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. Second, since the covenant sign of circumcision was also supposed to be a physical picture of a spiritual reality, it points to the priority of a transformed heart. While physical circumcision was a necessary act of obedience, it was never meant to be a standalone act, as if God is pleased with a group of people simply because they're physically circumcised. No. Man is pleasing in God's sight only when he has the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham had faith in chapter 15, even, even in chapter 12. Circumcision in the flesh symbolizes our need to have a circumcised heart, an obedient heart that is rightly responding to God. It says in Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. When our hearts are circumcised, then we will have a freeing disposition to keep all of God's instruction. And keeping all of God's instruction is the goal, isn't it? The Israelites who were circumcised in the flesh and were thus made a visible part of God's covenant people were obligated to keep all of God's instruction. Similarly, what did Jesus teach us? He taught that everyone who is baptized into the name of the triune God must learn what? To observe all that he has commanded. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. In other words, the necessity of covenant obedience has not changed, but the obedience will only take place if our hearts have been circumcised. If the Lord has given us a new heart and if His Holy Spirit is within us, empowering us on the path of obedience. Remember the lesson. You must demonstrate your faith in the Lord God Almighty by walking blamelessly before Him, by being anchored in His promises, and by keeping the signs of His covenant. Now, you might be tempted to despise covenant signs. For some of us, our cultural background inclines us to disregard rituals and formal observances. 
But Scripture teaches us the right way, just as Israel in the Old Testament was to keep the covenant sign of circumcision and to keep the sign of the weekly Sabbath and to keep the three annual feasts. So we are to keep the covenant sign of baptism and keep the regular worship gathering of God's people and keep the Lord's Supper. Let's keep these covenant signs, not in order to check some box off a list of duties, but because the life-giving Holy Spirit has brought us into fellowship with the Lord of the covenant, and he sustains our covenant fellowship in part through the faithful, heartfelt observance of the covenant signs. The final part of God's covenant talk with Abraham is the revelation of God's covenant succession plan, verses 15 to 21. When we heard in verses 4 to 8 that Abraham would father a multitude of nations and that his offspring would be included in the covenant, we might have thought that all of his physical offspring would be included in the covenant, but it is not so. And verses 15 to 21 make this clear. In the background, we recall that Abraham's son Ishmael was born 13 years ago, chapter 16. Abraham probably assumed that Ishmael would inherit God's promises, the promises that God had made to Abraham. But God had another plan. The promised covenant heir would not be Ishmael, whom the maidservant Hagar bore to Abraham, but would instead be a son born to Sarah, Abraham's wife. Having changed Abram's name to Abraham in verse 5, now in verse 15, the Lord changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess. In verse 16, the Lord makes it clear that Sarah shares in the riches of his promises to Abraham. Like Abraham, Sarah will be blessed by the Lord. Like Abraham, Sarah will become nations. Like Abraham, kings of peoples will come from Sarah. The heart of verse 16 is, I will give you a son by her. Abraham is humored by the prospect of having a son by Sarah when the two of them would be 100 years old and 90 years old, respectively. Abraham expresses his desire to the Lord, that his son Ishmael might live before the Lord. In other words, that, that Ishmael would be the covenant heir, the promised son. But God's plan is for the chosen son to come through Abraham and Sarah. God assures Abraham that he nevertheless has blessed Ishmael and will make Ishmael a great nation in his own right. But nevertheless, God tells Abraham that he will establish, he will confirm and extend his covenant, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. Little, little, little lesson here. Being God's faithful covenant partner requires submission on our part. We must submit to God's choice in every matter. Abraham had two brothers, but only Abraham was chosen to be the lead recipient of God's covenant. Abraham would end up having eight sons, but only Isaac was chosen to be the lead recipient of God's covenant. Isaac had two sons, but only Jacob was chosen to be the lead recipient of God's covenant. Jacob had 12 sons, and all 12 were included in the Israelite covenant, and yet only one of Jacob's sons received a priestly commission, Levi. 
and only one of Jacob's sons received a royal commission, Judah. Fast forward, Jesse had eight sons, but only one of Jesse's sons became king and was the lead recipient of the Davidic covenant. We must always submit to God's choice in every matter, for it is God's prerogative to choose the lead recipient of his covenant. Ultimately, the lead recipient of his covenant is his beloved son, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 1 Peter 2.4. Once we submit to God's choice, then we are in a position to receive all the blessings that God intends to release to us through the administration of his covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. Verse 21 concludes the Lord's words. After words, God departs from Abraham, and the question hanging in our minds is, what's Abraham going to do with the instruction that he's just received? And that brings us to the final part of our chapter, verses 23 to 27. The key phrase comes at the end of verse 23, as God had said to him. When Abraham was 99 years old, he was circumcised, and in obedience to the Lord's instruction, Abraham circumcised every male member of his household, and it was a large household, hundreds of people. He circumcised every male member of his household, including his 13-year-old son, Ishmael. Although Abraham showed poor judgment at certain times, chapter, end of chapter 12 and chapter 16. Nevertheless, what stands out is that Abraham is learning to respond rightly to the Lord's instruction. In chapter 12, the Lord told Abraham to go to a new land, and he went. Later, the Lord appeared to a Abraham and made him a promise, and, and Abraham responded by building an altar. Worship the Lord. In chapter 15, the Lord reaffirmed his promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed God. And then the Lord told, to bring, told Abraham to bring him certain animals for sacrifice in chapter 15. Abraham brought them. And here in chapter 17, the Lord told Abraham to keep the sign of the covenant, and he did. The upshot of all this is that Abraham is learning to walk blamelessly before God. He's learning to keep covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, when the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham in the first place, the emphasis was on the Lord as the sole guarantor of the covenant. And we need to be continually reminded of that, that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises, even to the point of shedding his own blood upon the cross. It's our foundation. We need to lean on the everlasting arms of the faithful covenant maker and promise keeper. Yes, and amen. But the emphasis of chapter 17 is that those whom the Lord brings into covenant with himself have their own covenant responsibilities to keep. Walk before me and be blameless. You shall keep my covenant. Abraham did what God had said to him to do. God's covenant partners must fulfill their responsibilities. This is sometimes not a popular message in an evangelifish pseudo-church world that loves cheap grace that comes with no responsibilities. 
But the call upon us to hear and obey God's instruction is so prolific in both testaments that we'd have to be blind not to see it. As Jesus said to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. John 15, 14. Are you one of the Lord's friends? Are you a faithful participant in his covenant? Remember what we learned in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham was justified in God's sight through faith apart from works. God does not look upon our imperfect obedience as the basis of our having a right relationship with him. Instead, God looks at our faith, our faith in him, as the basis of our right relationship with him. But the faith that brings us into a right relationship with God It's not a dead faith. It's not a theoretical faith. It's not a flash-in-the-pan faith. The faith that justifies is a living faith, a lively faith that responds rightly to God's instruction. Therefore, learning to walk before God, learning to be blameless, learning to keep God's covenant, learning to be a faithful member of God's covenant people. Learning and doing these things is not how you get into a right relationship with the Lord. Instead, learning and doing these things demonstrates that you already have a right relationship with the Lord and that you already have that living faith through which you came into fellowship with the living God. Therefore, I say to those of you who have this lively faith, demonstrate your faith in the Lord God Almighty by walking blamelessly before Him, by being anchored in His promises, and by observing the signs of His covenant. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us to walk before you, to be holy, to walk in the light as you are in the light, to walk in the same way that Jesus walked, to walk in obedience to your instructions. We pray that all this would be done not by our own strength, but by the strength of El Shaddai, by the power of of the Holy Spirit transforming our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.